hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to tell you about a giveaway we have happening that's happening until the end of January. Go to theshitaboutwriting.com and go to the giveaways page. We're giving away a developmental and line edit of the first three chapters and a coaching call with editor and book coach Trevor Brooks. You have until the end of January to enter and for more information you can go to trevorbrooksbooks.com. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we thought we'd do something slightly different. We tend to try and get through as many submissions as possible because so many of you are submitting your work to us and we appreciate that and we're trying to get to a ton of the submissions. But that means that we only get to spend 10 minutes per submission and poor Carly and Cece have got to deal with my helicopter hands and me showing them that they need to stop talking now. Otherwise, we're going to go over our time. So we thought today that they would each just look at one query and we would take a little bit longer to analyze it, look at things on a line level, etc., and see how that goes. So we're going to ask Carly to kick us off today with her query letter. 
I'm warning everybody that it is loud in my house today. Like many households this fall, I have sick kiddos at home. So for all of the yelling you hear, my apologies. Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I am learning so much from listening to your podcast. I'm so grateful. I appreciate all of your advice and insights. Thank you so much. And I do need help finding more recent comps. Fade Into You is a 109,000 word upmarket literary romance with a metafictional twist. Similar in setting and romance and intrigue to Virgin River, less sex, similar in metafictional elements to The Starless Sea, meddling and enlightening authorial voice, and similar in genre and playfulness to The Air Affair, frolicking cross-genre tropes. Our hero, Jack Walker, wants revenge. Who pulled him off the special weapons task force, reassigning him to the sheriff's desk in a remote footholds town he wants to know? Two weeks later, his brother is shot in the line of duty, one day before his subpoenaed testimony about the task force. When the PD rules his brother's murder a suicide, Jack suspects foul play. Just how far up the chain of command the collusion goes, he'll find out. Or does he need to protect his brother's widow and children or the elderly writer who's agreed to expose the other versions of the story? Our heroine, Lorelai Westman, is bleeding from a stab in the back inserted by her office paramour. He entangled her heart, stole her clients, and forced her out on a medical leave of absence. Can she prove him the villain? But nearby in the footholds, the grandmother who raised her hasn't much time left in this world. Should she return home before it's too late? She's afraid to face her grandmother. Our author, Cassandra Westman, feels Atropos' knife dangerously close to her thread, yet she is not fading away just yet. Revered, infamous, and ill, she's writing her last chapter. Leaving behind a legacy of romance novels and fans, what keeps her awake is her granddaughter's choices. Wrong guy, worthless career, wasted talent. On a moonless night, Sheriff Walker pulls Lorelai from a ditch along a dark canyon road and delivers her safely but shaken to Cassandra. Like a lightning flash, Cassandra foresees a new denouement to her final chapter. She'll write our hero's story her way, true to her genre's tropes. Lorelai ruffled that the striking sheriff inconceivably refuses to investigate who put her in the ditch. Suspects Sheriff Walker is manipulating justice, her heartstrings too. Still, she cannot refuse her grandmother's request to help her write this one last romance. I'm from Baltimore, where politicians and police notoriously keep secrets. I teach a fiction writing seminar for a magnet arts high school and clear my head mountain biking with my just certified as therapy rescue dog. Thank you for your consideration, Robbie Levin. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, will you give us the word count and your take on that query letter? Okay, so this one was 430 words. Okay, so as you guys can tell, this is a very complicated story. We have a lot going on. It's very, it's like a story inside of a story inside of a story. So we we have a lot to kind of intersect with here and dissect. So just starting off with the technical elements. So fade into you. It's not the title. It's not in all caps. It's just, you know, regular type. So I would just make sure that one is all caps. And it's called an upmarket literary romance. So we kind of, it needs to be either upmarket or literary. And I feel like, I don't know at the stage which one it is. So I think, you know, a little bit to be discovered here. I think no matter what it is kind of literary because of the metafictional element, because we have these multiple layers, it could potentially be upmarket. If, if it was a little bit more clear, I think like what the goals and the stakes were. I feel like right now we have a lot of rabbit holes to go down which obviously the comps here, the starless sea, like we're trying to kind of, you know, allude to. So with the comps, there's a huge, there's a huge kind of mix of ideas here. And you also use the word metafiction twice in that paragraph. So we really only need to keep it 
once. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is a really hard one, which makes it, I think, more experimental, which probably makes it more literary. So I would definitely call into our hotline where you can get comps from our bookseller contacts because this one, this one's tricky. I, I understand the Starless C one. I think, I think that one does work here. Okay, so I think overall, like, I wonder if we have to explain earlier that our author is Cassandra Westman to kind of frame the entire understanding of the story and of the query letter because we don't until the third body paragraph kind of learn who the author of the book is that you know of these characters that we're reading about. So I think that probably I think that probably needs to be a little bit more clear for us. And I understand why this is so tricky. It's essentially like multiple storylines, right? With multiple characters. But I think we really need to streamline a couple things, right? Like the actual motivation of each individual character. So it really just seems like our author just needs to finish her book. And our characters, obviously, like it's a book within a book. So they seem to have their motivation because it is this mystery kind of thriller element. So that seems a little bit more clear to me. But I think I can need to understand a little bit more about Cassandra and her goal to finish her book. Oh, I just thought of another another comp, but it's a movie. So you know that a Sandra Bullock movie with Channing Tatum? It's called Lost City, The Lost City or something like that. That was one where it's like it, it opens with her writing about the the scene that ends up happening. I don't know. That's just that's a pretty commercial comp, but that's just one that I thought of as well. So yeah, it's possible. It's possible. All of this is very possible. It's just communicating this to the reader and making the stakes equal in each timeline, in each, you know, metaverse here. I think that's the most important thing because I think we just need to know it's clever, but I just kind of want to know a little bit more about like why this matters so much to Cassandra, I guess is my big question. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. I just want to add something here as well, because I'm going to be chatting today about more line level issues in terms of writing and line level stuff is as important in the query letter as it is in those opening pages. So for example, there is a line here that goes, a stab in the back inserted by. You cannot insert a stab, right? You can insert a knife into someone's back, but stab is a verb that means a knife has been inserted into somebody, right? With the intention to wound or, or kill or whatever the case may be is. So be very careful with your language in the query letter as well, because this is the very first impression that an agent has of your writing abilities. So pick your verbs carefully, pick your imagery very, very carefully there as well. Okay, wonderful, colleague. So can you tell us what's in those opening pages? Yes. Okay. So we start with a prologue. It is called itself a prologue. So I, I respect that. But very interestingly, so it says 1555 Florin. So I assume this is the year, like a medieval year, like, you know, 1555 and Florin. So this is the fictional town of the Princess Bride movie. I don't know if Bianca, you picked up on this when you were when you were reading. Yeah. So so this prologue, this is very interesting to me because it's very complicated. Because so we have a scene, and I don't know the Princess Bride well enough to know if this was an actual scene that's recreated in writing here or whether this is just kind of like a fan fiction of the characters, but we kind of open with a prologue, which is about the Princess Bride characters. Okay. And so then we move into part one called Early Summer. And this is where we meet Lorelai, which is kind of what happens in the query letter, which is she is driving down a country road. She's on her way to visit her grandmother. And she sees some motorcycles kind of coming at her on, on the road and they don't like make room for her. And she swerves off the road and the motorcycles keep going. And then we flip into some italicized writing, which is now in the point of view of 
Lorelai, the character, in third person and just says, like, our heroine is stunned. And so now we flip to her POV in third person and she meets a sheriff character. And this is like the romance part of it. So this is a little like romance scene between her driving off the road and the sheriff kind of coming to help her. And then we switch back to not italicized writing and we are kind of in the point of view of our sheriff, Jack Walker. So that's the structural walkthrough. Right. So as we said, quite complicated. Okay. So Carly, what was your take on it? All right. So I, as I said, this whole Princess Bride thing. So I don't think this we can use this material because these are characters that exist and belong to somebody else. And so I don't know, like to me, if we are, again, even if we're recreating the scene, then we are borrowing content from somebody else, like a license holder of these characters. Even if we are manipulating these characters to do something else with them then it's kind of like fan fiction and that's kind of like a gray area to use it for commercial purposes in your own story and I also don't understand how the princess bride even is going to come back into play here in the larger kind of scope of this novel so I was so interested about like how this is going to work and have a lot of question marks on terms of the legality element of again using existing characters to me it's like using Mickey Mouse right like the Princess Bride is so revered and beloved so again taking existing characters and using them for your own commercial purposes like that's a big kind of red flag for me so I'm interested in to hear what Bianca and Cece have to say about that as well in terms of the actual content part I actually really liked the romance element I really like I think the strongest writing of the whole material was actually the romance Bianca I'm gonna ask you what you think about the and Cece what you think about this whole Princess Bride stuff Cece, I think you're the best person to talk about this because I have zero idea as to whether this is allowed and, and what the norm is. What I do know is, for example, you know, if you're writing a book about writing, so let's say Jessica Brody Saved the Cat writes a novel. Throughout the book, she summarizes what happens in other books as examples for action beats, etc., etc., and that's allowed. But in terms of this, I'm not sure. Cece, what's your take? It obviously depends on, like, it's a case-by-case basis, right? Like, fair use is not an exact science. It's applied on a case-by-case basis, and you have to analyze various different elements. But to Bianca's point, that's someone actually referencing the book, not making it their own. That's someone, you know, writing about the craft and saying, in, I don't know, in the Witches of Moonshine manner, when Ruby is mentioned in the first page, like, it's not someone taking the character of Ruby and making a world of their own, which is what I believe Carly is 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 talking about. So I would steer clear just because... There's no reliable resource. Like I wish there were a website where I could tell you, go to this website to see if something is A, in the public domain, like B, how many years left before it actually is in the public domain. There is no reliable resource where you can look this up fast. The Princess Bride is not in the public domain. That I can tell you. But there is no one place that you can go to that you can find out this information. So my personal take is do what the Fifty Shades of Grey lady. I forget her name. This is so embarrassing. So that was originally Twilight fan fiction, wasn't it? But like she changed all the characters' names, right? Like it was just... E.L. James. I just remembered it. E.L. James. That's her name. Yes. E.L. James obviously changed all the names and not even just changed the name was inspired by I feel like that's more of a like more of an accurate way way to frame it. So I would just do do that. Like I would steer clear. I am very conservative when it comes to these types of risks. Why give yourself the headache? Why even put the agent that's reading this in a position to go, oh my gosh, is this going to be a problem? You know, just 
just make make it okay. That that's what I would do. Yeah, and it, it seemed like just like for the purpose of breaking the fourth wall or introducing the fact that you're gonna break the fourth wall, but there's so many other ways to do it. I'm just so confused about why we would borrow that from somebody else. And my question there is if it had to be the Princess Bride, I mean it could be any kind of fictionalized, you know, spoofy take on these men who are all trying to kill each other and and who are fighting and who want to be the hero of the story. And now that they've vanquished someone, they don't know quite what to do because, you know, they're the hero, but they have nothing left to do. You could theoretically spoof the Princess Bride and make it different characters and astute readers are going to pick up that you're spoofing the Princess Bride because there are a lot of spoof novels. Like I know with Harry Potter, there's tons of spoof novels that you pick up and it's called Barry Trotter and the whatever the case may be is and those are allowed. So if you are insistent on using the Princess Bride, then perhaps there's a way to kind of spoof that using different character names that are kind of similar. But yeah. I'm just going to add as a final thing it's just this is how complicated the subject is you don't only have to look at the stuff that's in the original work you have to be careful with things like incremental additions of originality so for example snow white yes absolutely in the public domain but certain elements of snow white such as the dwarf's names were added by disney later so that is not so that's how complicated it is i Yeah, and we're also starting like, so this is the prologue, right? This is our first introduction to your writing as a whole. And you are starting with somebody else's world, right? Like somebody else's IP. Like to me, that's just so risky to not be starting with original content when you're trying to introduce us to your work and your style of writing. It just seems... It just seems like a crutch when it's like, why not show off your original work to start with? Like, that's the whole point of us getting interested in your work and your writing and getting excited about you. Okay, Carly, was there anything else you wanted to add? One thing I was really curious about, and I think this probably has to do with the fact that, you know, we have a story within a story, is why certain things were italicized and why certain things weren't. And I think you're trying to signal something to the reader, but we don't have the legend that you're using. So I was just confused about when we were in whose point of view and why, because it's really tired on our eyes to read a in italic so you really have to think about your signposts in a legend for like how we're going to interpret all this information my suggestion there was if everything that's in italics is what this fictional author is busy writing then change the font of that instead of having it in italics have it like a typewriter font or a different font so that it immediately signals to the reader that every time they see that particular font that is the author typing something you know as opposed to the story unfolding because there were instances within those italicized areas where you were quoting directly the character's thoughts and in that instance you want to put direct character thoughts in italics, but the whole piece was in italics, and so you couldn't do that. Some other things that I just want to point out. So what this writer is doing is they're interjecting with the authorial voice throughout the piece, which is, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It makes for interesting reading, but that needs to be consistently applied. So just an example here, it goes, ha Simon Morgenstern laughed, clapping his hands, looking past the smashed pomegranates and broken wine goblets and a nego, and then in brackets, leaning against a table. Right. And then we have a little bit later as well. We have the room was a mess. What with the climax of the story, a one on one sword battle between him and this part is in brackets, the dark and daring swashbuckling hero. And then the next part isn't in brackets and the dastardly villain. 
And then this part is in brackets again, the sadistic, disfigured, six-fingered man. So there's these interjections the whole time from this authorial author, which is fine. But then we had a, this interjection happening as a dialogue tag. So it goes, well, yes, I agree. Revenge does taste sweet. Inigo says, thinking, so does this apple. And that particular dialogue tag was in brackets. And so consistently, that didn't make sense. So if you're going to be interjecting with the authorial voice, have that consistently applied and not just randomly, sometimes a dialogue tag, sometimes a description of a particular character. Okay, another thing is we've got quite a bit of repetition here. We go, Inigo lowered his sword, studying Count Reuben, splayed out in a pool of blood, slowly spreading along the castle floor. Inigo's left hand pressed against the oozing wound above his own belly from Count Reuben's knife. His gut was bleeding, but not so bad. It could be worse. Inigo inspected Count Reuben, nudging his face with the toe of his boot so that Count Reuben was staring at the ceiling. We've got way too much Count Reuben, Count Reuben, Count Reuben there. So you want to mix it up with things like, it could be worse, Inigo inspected the count nudging his face with the toe of his boot so that the man was staring at the ceiling right so always be aware that there's certain words that if you repeat them too much it's going to just sound repetitive so read that aloud and find synonyms and again there were instances where action beats were formatted as dialogue tags and vice versa so for our listeners remember that a dialogue tag includes a verb things like he said he whispered, she yelled, etc. So you've got to have that verb there for it to be a dialogue tag. And when you use a dialogue tag, you use it with a comma. But if you have an action beat, that doesn't include somebody saying he said, she said. It's just he turned to look at the window or she held her breath or whatever the case may be is. So when you use an action beat, that is not preceded by a comma. That is just preceded by a period. The dialogue has a period at the end and then the action beat happens by itself. So both of today's submissions I have critiqued on a line level. So for those of you who support us on Kofi, you can have a look at the different instances there because these things are important. You know, these indicate that you as a writer know your craft, you have mastered your craft, and you know how to use the tools of the craft correctly. All right, Cece, will you read the second query letter for us, please? Dear Ms. Lira, thank you for the opportunity to submit my query in First Pages for feedback. I am a huge fan of your podcast and always appreciate your thoughtful and candid insights. I'm submitting to you due to your interest in genre blends and your appreciation of unlikable leads. Two Lies and a Truth is an 89,000-word rom-com with crossover appeal to fans of women's fiction and contemporary romance, with a family mystery at its core. It is a travel log with a trunk full of emotional baggage, a la Emily Henry's People We Meet on Vacation, featuring a grieving hot mess protagonist like in Catherine Center's The Bodyguard. Ophelia Dahl, 34, is in a rut. She has an unfulfilling job, a track record of failed relationships, and just buried her beloved father, the only parent she ever really knew. But while clearing out the clutter to sell her family home, she stumbles upon a 30-year-old document revealing her mother was stripped of her parental rights six months after the accident that supposedly killed her. And her grief gets more complicated. Ophelia's childhood neighbor, Beau Augustine, 34, 
is an Ivy League grad, a tenured professor, and has published two bestsellers about historical topics Ophelia's never heard of. Youth and proximity made them friends, adolescence and resentment made them rivals. But when Beau shows up to deliver a casserole and condolences, she swallows her pride and enlists his help to find the truth. Beau's latest research project is about to take him on a road trip across the West Coast, and Ophelia tags along to follow the clues left behind by her not-dead mother. They each have their reasons for seeking answers along the way. And despite detours, dead ends, fires, and feuds, they just might find something even better, the road back to each other. I have a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature from the University of California at Berkeley. During the early part of my career, I wrote arts and entertainment features, reviews, and headlines for the San Jose Mercury News, and now work as a philanthropy executive where I support organizations striving for equity and social justice for youth. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area with my husband, three kids, and disobedient dog. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Mara Williams-Lowe. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there, and what was your take on that? This tracks at about 390 words. I think that's a great length. So good job. I know it's really hard to do that. Okay, so... As I was reading this, I was like making notes on the margins, which is what I always do. And the first note was the title, Two Lies and a Truth. It made me think of the Meg Mitchell Moore novel, Two Truths and a Lie. And I'm sure there are other books with that title too, because it's just such a common, not a common expression, but it's something that's easily identifiable. It's not that I don't like it. It's that it makes me think of a thriller. If I were to be recommended a book, oh, you have to read this book, Two Lies and a Truth. I'd be like, thriller right? Like maybe domestic suspense. I don't know, but not a rom-com. So maybe that's intentional and that's okay if it is, but I definitely didn't get rom-com vibes. And then my second note is about the plot paragraph. We are relying on some much beloved tropes, right? Like boy and girl grow up as next door neighbors. They have a crush on each other. Maybe they even have some type of budding relationship. And then they meet again when they're adults after things have happened. Father dies, daughter rummages through his things and then finds a family secret. Road trip, right? Like they're on a literal journey, but it's also like a metaphorical journey. And there's nothing wrong with that because all books rely on tropes. There's no such thing as a book with an original trope. I'm a big believer in that. I do worry that we are not getting the element of originality that I personally look for, especially in the genre like rom-coms. I have to be honest, I feel like such a jerk saying this because it's like, you wrote this amazing book, right? And here I am going, what's original about it? But actually, though, that's what I'm doing. I'm asking what is original about it? Because especially with the the two last lines in the plot paragraph, the one that starts with Bo's latest research project is about to take him on a road trip. And then we end with, you know, they might find the road back to each other. When I, as an agent, read rom-com submissions, and we get so many rom-com submissions, I'm always thinking to myself, what is new about this? Like, what is new? What is fresh? What is original? Which again, I know makes us sound like jerks, but it is the reality of this industry, right? Like you need to show some type of hook. Now, not to say that I would not scroll down and read your pages because I would. I always care so much about like the execution, the writing. I am saying though that if there is an original element, I would just make sure that that's woven into the the query letter. And if it's if there is not, if this is a traditional, you know, boy girl 
childhood story. They're going to meet again when they're older. That's okay. Just know that it's going to hinge on the writing to a degree that is higher than any other genre. Because when it comes to rom-coms, we hear this from acquisitions editors all the time. The market is flooded with rom-coms. We've, we all have too many rom-coms. What is original about this rom-com? So that's something to, to think about. And I love the mention of the disobedient dog. That was so cute. All happy dogs are disobedient dogs, in my opinion. Thank you, Cece. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that it hinges on the writing, because I thought this writing was excellent at a line level. Such, such good writing. So, Mara, congratulations on that. When I was going through it on on line level basis, there was very little that I had to critique there. And for our Kofi listeners, if you want to see what we mean about really good writing on a line level, then definitely have a look at the submission. Okay, Cece, will you tell our listeners what was in the opening pages? Yes, and I just want to agree. Excellent writing on a line level. Okay, so we have a prologue. It is not titled a prologue. It's a prologue. It's a sneaky prologue called The Treehouse. Our protagonist is bored. It is the summer before they start high school. She's with Bo in the treehouse. And because she's bored, she gets an idea. And the idea is she and Bo are going to kiss because they're the only two people who have never kissed anyone in their school, and they need the practice. So she just tells Bo, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kiss. And then he says no, because she'll tell her dad, because she tells her dad everything. And she insists and, you know, and reminds him, like, we can't be the only ones who have never kissed someone before. And then, you know, finally he says okay, and we can tell that he wants to. We can tell that Bo really wants to. The kiss happens. Sparks fly. And yeah, and that's that's our prologue. So then we have one page of chapter one, which happens 20 years later. Our protagonist is in her childhood home and her dad suddenly died. So she's still dealing with being in her childhood home after her father's death. There's like the doorbell rings and she's like, oh my gosh, I don't look presentable. Maybe it's just a delivery person. Maybe it's just a real estate agent. But when she opens the door, it's Bo. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, what was your take on those pages? I'm so glad I get to do a deep dive today. I'm so excited about this. So first I want to say, yeah, sneaky prologue. It's okay not to call it a prologue. I have a question, big picture question. Is this dual timeline or are we just getting a prologue when they're young? If it's dual timeline, I would add that to the query letter. If not, then don't don't worry about it. I don't think it is, but you know, you never know. They're in the summer before high school, right? Like that, there's a line that says, this summer with high school looming and nosy parents hovering, we realized our old haunt was the perfect private hangout. So I get how old they are without you telling me how old they are, which is really well done. The thing is though, if they are, what, 13, 14? They have to really, really, like she has to sound like a 13, 14 year old. And it's not that she doesn't, but there's no insecurity and I just don't buy it. She's asking a boy to kiss her. There's a few things that would be going through her mind. One, if she is asking Bo to kiss her because she wants to practice, which I believe is the case, then what is she practicing for? You know, is she practicing because she has a crush on so-and-so, the really hot, I don't know, hockey player? And then maybe she'd be thinking about him? Or is she practicing because she wants to tell her girlfriends about the kiss because she has heard her girlfriends tell her about their kisses and now she wants to join in on the fun. Like when we're practicing for the future us has a skill that current us doesn't have, we're futurizing, we're envisioning that future us getting to reap the, the rewards of that. So I wanted to see her futurizing because we all do, especially teenagers. Teenagers compare and futurize all the time. 
So I didn't have that and I really wanted it. And I marked the moments where I really wanted that. So for example, there's a part where she says, she pinky promises that she won't tell her dad. And by the way, I wanted to know whether that was legitimate or not, whether that was genuine or not. I wanted, I wanted interiority on, oh my gosh, this is going to be the first secret I ever keep from my dad. Or maybe I will tell my dad and Bo doesn't have to know. I wanted the what is left unsaid. But also she's talking about Cosmo, right? Like there's a Cosmo edition there. And she's like, the, the cover story has the complete guide to kissing. So I marked... As, as like a little note, like, is this how she envisioned her first kiss? Was like, are there specifics on how this is different from her fantasy? Because look, we all fantasize about our first kiss. And we do have a mention of Sarah Taylor's older brother, Maddie, who had probably already kissed a dozen girls in the sense of Bo is not hot like Maddie. But then was Maddie the guy she wanted to kiss? I just I just wanted more specifics on her interiority. And the reason why I keep asking for specifics is because when we think, we think in specifics. We don't think in generics. We don't think, I am now going to practice kissing. In our minds, the vision of whoever we actually want to kiss pops up. So I really wanted interiority, really wanted emotionality, especially because Bo says no initially. Does that make her feel insecure? Or is she so comfortable around him that she's just like, no, stop saying no, but we're going to do this. You know, like I just wanted, I wanted whatever deep emotion she was feeling in that moment. And insecurity has to be there in some type of layer. It doesn't have to be towards Bo. It can be towards the, the Maddie guy or whoever the guy is. So that was really, really helpful. I also wanted more in her relationship with her dad, which can be inserted when Bo does tell her, you will tell your father, because that will be super useful since in the present, her dad does die. And I also want to say, and this is just something that like, I don't think, I never thought I would say this in the podcast, but here I am saying this. The kiss is so well done. Like that scene, I stopped breathing for those two paragraphs. I stopped breathing and then I felt like I was having my first kiss all over again. Like I, I was just like, whoa, like so well done. The mixture of description with with emotionality, with interiority, all the interiority that I kept asking for, you just gave that to us in those two, three paragraphs. It's just, it is perfect. It is perfect, absolute perfection. It's, you know, we were reliving our first. I think anyone who, who reads this is reliving their first kiss. It's just absolutely excellent. I did want them to lock eyes after they part. There's no mention of his eyes when they talk and, and we needed that. I needed like, cause they're so close to each other. Right. So I needed that, the, the, that moment where the eyes meet chapter one. I do like that. We have a prologue that shows us her relationship with Bo, but the prologue is a sweet prologue. It's not a story forward curiosity prologue. Given how intense the kiss is, that's okay. I, I can get behind that. I was fine with it by the end. Cause I was just like, Whoa, this is amazing. This is so well done. But then with chapter one, because she's in her childhood home and we just get all the information laid out, the dad died. It was sudden. I thought that that kind of stripped away the tension a little bit. So I think I would keep us guessing, not keep us guessing necessarily that the dad died, but perhaps keep us guessing that it was sudden, keep us guessing with some other element, just because we have pages that are really well written, like so well written, but we don't have 
anything that's making me go, what is the answer to this curiosity seed? Like what, like we don't have any story forward curiosity seeds. It's relying on the relationships and it's relying on the writing, both of which are excellent. Absolutely excellent. But I also think you should include curiosity seeds. No one in the history of aging ting has ever gone, oh, too bad. I'm too curious about too many things. That just doesn't happen, right? Like we love feeling curious. So I would... I would add a few more things, I think. I have a lot of line notes on the on the first on the first page of the first chapter. So you will you will see what I mean when I'm suggesting changes. Here's an example. Circumstance made us friends because we were the only kids on our quiet street, both only children and born 12 hours apart. But as soon as we entered high school, our differences mattered more than our shared history. It's not that it's bad, like these lines. You can see they're super well written, but they are too explanation heavy. If you were to weave in emotion, resentment, bitterness, anger, anything about the fact that they were thrusted together by circumstance, that would not make it explanation heavy. Right now, all that's, all this line is doing is sharing information. And the second you weave in emotion, you're also revealing character. So then it's doing two things instead of only doing one. And it just feels more, I think it feels more organic. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, Cece, so I have a question because... I think that leading with the prologue was a mistake. One, you're starting with characters who are 13 years old in a novel that's for adults. Two, I feel like you take all the tension out of chapter one by giving us all of that backstory. If he arrives on her doorstep with this casserole and we get curiosity seeds about, oh my God, it's him and there's feelings and it's complicated and we don't know why, to me, that's planting a lot more story forward curiosity so that down the line, we can have a flashback to what happened as an answer to our curiosity. But I honestly believe that beginning with it as beautifully written as it is, and I must say, I agree with Cece, that kiss scene, I was like, <gasps> it was excellent. But I feel like it takes all the tension out of chapter one. What do you say, Cece? It does take away all the tension because right now it's all hinging on the relationships. So it's going to come down to like, definitely that advice is the, the, the it's good advice and it's um, the more traditional route. I feel like this is probably like the hook here is probably a relationship hook, right? Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything like super bombastic that's necessarily going to happen. So yeah, like removing the prologue as, as much as it's going to kill me to not have that scene right away because now I'm attached to it. Yeah, I think that that would be like definitely the the smart safe is the wrong word because that makes it seem easy but that's not what we mean route however i still need curiosity seeds that are not going to be aggravating and i think that this like you know when you when you uh, I'm, I'm fixing this one thing and then this other thing becomes a problem after you fix that one thing like the pieces of the puzzle like be careful though because yes removing the prologue makes sense but then the curiosity seeds about Bo can't be so vague that they're aggravating we're going to need something specific. We're going to need to be specifically curious about not just who Bo is, but why his presence there is, is so moving to our protagonist. And those emotions have to be active emotions. So I don't know what happened between her and Bo, but it better be something that makes her feel angry, resentful. Like it has to be something that's active. It can't just be she's sad because she's already grieving with her dad. So I don't want two sadnesses, right? Like I don't want sadness on sadness on sadness. No sadness sandwich. Awesome, Cece. And then something that I just want to say as well in terms of a scene expanding something, you give us this paragraph in chapter one. 
Dad's death was sudden. On the natural disaster scale, it was a 9.0 earthquake that rattled me to my core, and I've never been one to have an emergency plan. It was so abrupt that Dad had no time to toss his sci-fi erotica, weed, all the Snickers wrappers spilling from his nightstand. Sifting through the stuff has brought me closer to him in all the wrong ways. It may also compel me to tidy my own apartment more often to avoid post-mortem embarrassment. Now, I love that paragraph, but I honestly believe that needs to be expanded into a scene. I want to be shown that. I don't want to be told that. Is there a way, Cece, that you feel like we can begin a bit earlier when she's actually in the house cleaning up all of this stuff and discovering all of this stuff? Is that a way to plant some curiosity seeds with regards to her relationship with her father, which I assume is a very unusual relationship because very few 13-year-old girls I know kiss a boy for the first time and think I'm going to tell my father about this. So, you know, they've, they've clearly got a very lovely relationship and a very close relationship, which is unusual. And I'm wondering how we can leverage that. The, the idea that comes to my mind, I'm sure it's not for everyone, but I like it is we don't even need to know he's her dad right away. She could be cleaning the apartment of the only man she ever loved or the first man she ever loved. Cause that's what a father is. I don't mean this in a creepy way. And then slowly, same same page. I'm not talking about keeping us, you know, wondering for, for pages and pages. We can understand it's her dad, right? Like we could get that scene. I, I love the idea of, of expanding that to a proper scene. But remember, we're going to need a lot of specifics on her situation in order for that to read as believable. Because one of the things I highlighted in chapter one was the line, you know, to avoid my own postmortem embarrassment. Wouldn't she be thinking about who would find her when it's her time? I, for example, am child-free. When I was clearing out my dad's things, I thought to myself, I'm not going to have this. Like, I'm not going to have anyone who's going to sort through my stuff. And yeah, they won't see the erotica novels, sure. But they, I also won't have anyone that will suspend their lives and spend months and months clearing out my stuff. So, and that made me feel, yeah, people would assume sadness. Honestly, that made me feel relieved. I, I'm never going to make anyone grieve like that, you know? Like, no one will ever hurt as much as I was hurting. So all those, but then I was also like, am I doing the right thing with my life? Like, all those layers of emotions are going to have to be there in a really specific way. So, for example, maybe she would be thinking to herself, if she's never had any luck in love, that it's it's for the best because you know at least now she will never have to put someone through this i don't i don't know because i'm obviously projecting my own stuff here right but but i do think that that would make a really compelling scene i i absolutely think we need lots of specifics though because we're getting generics and we can't get generics in her interiority well and also that was all done in a paragraph so if you can expand it into a scene you've got so much more space to lean into all of that right carly you wanted to add something oh I'm no just i don't say- have any See, erotica novels. I just have novels. way more embarrassing them things, in so format, I inserted like erotica novels there <laughs> to make it seem better. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You need uh, you need a few more on your shelf there, Cece. <laughs> you know what I did, Cece, and this is what I recommend. I picked my most cutthroat nephew, and I told him he's in charge of putting Stephen and I into a home one day, but I made sure that he wasn't going to inherit a lot of money so that he was incentivized to put us in a home. So you see, I've really thought this out, but but he'll be the one to like make the cutthroat decisions when the time comes. Okay, so that's it for today's episode. It was actually lovely to be able to do more of a deep dive. I think we're going to try and do more of these going forward. Remember, for our Kofi supporters, you're going to see a ton of line edits and comments 
if you head to Kofi and have a look at, at our feedback there. Carly and Cece, as always, thank you so much. Now let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. I'm Chelsea Devantes, and I wrote a comedy gal memoir. It is titled, I Shouldn't Be Telling You This, but I'm going to anyway. And it is out on June 4th. I have partnered with the indie bookstore, The Purple Couch Bookshop, who I recently met, and I just love them so much. And I've also partnered with the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, to give away 15 personalized copies of my memoir to listeners who enter the giveaway. And here's the thing. I always wanted to know about jobs, about writing, how people got into entertainment. And so when I wrote my memoir, I included all those details. I listened to podcasts like The Shit No One Tells You About Writing all the time when I was coming up, trying to learn, glean, get details, get the dirt, get the goss. I included all of the goss. It is my life. It has wild twists and turns. Listen, I date a magician. I find out my dad is not my dad. I go on to become Jon Stewart's head writer. There's all kinds of things in there, and I put a lot of deeds in. So... 
I'm looking forward to being a speaker at the All About Memoir webinar on the 11th of May, where I will be talking more about the book and more about how to memoir, because I read memoirs all the time. I host a podcast called Glamorous Trash, where all we do is cover memoirs, specifically female celebrity memoirs. So enter the giveaway to win a copy of my book, and I will see you at the workshop. Today's guest writes novels, humor, short fiction, and essays in Richmond, Virginia. Her presence is tolerated by her two rambunctious children and very patient husband, all of whom have become practiced at making supportive faces when she shouts, listen to this sentence. She is a frequent contributor to numerous humor outlets, including Max Sweeney's, and her stories and essays have been published in Hobart Pulp, Pithead Chapel, Cease, cows, and lengthy diatribes in the notes app on her phone. She was born and raised in Arizona by her linguist parents, which is a lot like being raised by wolves, but with better grammar. She moved to Virginia as an adult, but still carries mountains and canyons in her heart. And sometimes when she closes her eyes, she can still smell ponderosa pines in the sun. It's my pleasure to welcome Audrey Burgess. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we are delighted to have you. I thoroughly enjoyed the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone. For our listeners, such a delightful book, really, really lovely. And as I was reading your bio, Audrey, it immediately brought to mind my first question, because that is a hilarious bio. And the bio says that you write a lot of humor. And yet reading this book, There were moments of humor in it, but it was by no means what I would call a humorous book. And as a writer myself, I struggle with this because I naturally tend towards humor. But here's the thing, not all books are meant to be humorous. As much as you as an author want to inject your personality into them, sometimes a story is just meant to be more literary, more serious, more reflective. So so can you speak about that? Was that ever a challenge for you? Or did you know straight out the gate, this was not going to be that kind of book? Well, it's, it's funny you should ask that because that's kind of how the book came to be. The Minuscule Mansion was actually my second book, which may help listeners to know <laughs> because it was not, the initial one was not successful. The first book that I wrote, I wrote over the fall and winter of 2018, I think 2000, maybe 2017 into 2018. And it was much, much darker. And it was the first thing that I had ever really written for myself in 20 years. I was one of those people that always said I was going to write someday. And then 20 years went by between the time I graduated with an English degree and the time I actually started to do it. And I was a lawyer in between and still am. And so when I started writing, I think the story that came out of me the first time was pretty dark. It had some humor in it, but it was gallows humor. And then I did what I think a lot of novice writers do. I finished the book and I went, oh, okay. So so what's next? Now I get this published, right? This is how I make my way into the literary world. And it turned out, spoiler alert, it's a lot harder than that. So I bought some books and started, I think the first book that I bought was The Essential Guide to Getting Your Book Published, which was really helpful just in terms of trying to think of yourself as an author from the beginning instead of referring to yourself as aspiring. And and one of the things they really emphasized was building a platform. So while I was querying that first book, I 
decided I was going to start writing some short fiction and some humor. And that was originally intended to be the way I was going to get my name out there. And instead, it really took on a life of its own. And that's where I really started to build an audience. And so when I would get these query responses back for that first book, I was getting a lot of, we really like this book. It's got some real positive points to it. But one of the things we're worried about is you've got this audience you've been building and this voice you've been building as a humor writer. And then you've got this book that you wrote with a deadly forest fire and orphans and the heroin epidemic. And that's not quite the laugh riot we were expecting. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, uh, I, it started to dawn on me and it actually took me a really long time to finally realize, oh, wait, I really have developed a kind of a mismatch here. And so I was casting about for an idea because I, I'm in a novel writing group with some other friends of mine that were all trying to get into pitch wars at the same time in, I think, 2018. And I said to them, you know, I really think I need to write something that's that's lighter hearted. And so my original idea was a romantic comedy, which was kind of a joke among my friends, because uh, you really can't get a person who's less comfortable with romance scenes than me. I actually wrote a humor piece about it. <laughs> Because I just, uh, I, I couldn't, I can't do that without feeling very strange and it doesn't come out as my voice. So I had this idea for just a lighthearted romantic comedy. And what sparked it was a lot of people right in the pandemic, I was following a lot of other writers. And of course, everyone had new hobbies they were doing. And for whatever reason, several writers that I followed started this, this miniaturist hobby. It was, you would buy these kits. And the one that I saw most frequently was this, like, it was called a book nook. It was designed to slide between books on your shelf. And some of them were just incredibly elaborate with functional lights and everything. And I thought, oh, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll write about somebody who does that, you know, somebody who maybe she develops the kits or maybe she, you know, but she's a miniaturist and she doesn't get out much because this is all that she does. And somehow this is going to go viral and uh, she's going to meet the man of her dreams. And that's going to be what happens. And I got about 1200 words into writing. And this, I think this is not unique to me. My characters surprised me a little bit. I got to the end of a chapter and I had, there's a, there's a scene in the book where Myra has kind of, with her family's help, wrestled the the mansion, the minuscule mansion up into the attic, and she's rearranging things inside. And she sees a reflection of her eye in the mirror, and it winks at her, and she doesn't know how to wink. And that sentence came out fully formed. And as soon as it did, I went, oh, oh, this is a, this is a very different kind of book. And it did. It had a lot more darkness to it than I expected. But I knew exactly what was going to happen from the second that wink happened. I just, I knew, I knew some of the people that I'd introduced already were going to have a, a story behind them. And because I'd been writing so much more humor by the time I wrote that book, I think that inflected the tone of the novel a lot more than when I was writing that novel the first time, because this time I really, I had a lot more confidence in my own voice and what it needed to sound like. And I also just find that more readable anyway. I'm one of those people that has always really responded to to fiction that has that little that little thread of humor to it, no matter how dark the book itself might be. And so I think because that's a tone I respond to, it's one that tends to work its way into my writing. I know that was a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> 
That was a wonderfully thorough answer, and I appreciate that. For our listeners, you may hear Muggles snoring <laughs> in the background. My golden retriever is right next to me. She's she's a bit sick, so I do not have the heart to tell her to shut up. So, so if anybody hears weird noises, it is not me being flatulent. It is Muggle snoring next to me. Right. So based on a whole bunch of things you said there, Audrey, so – one, I want to say that rom-com writers make it look so damn easy. I remember being very dismissive of romantic comedies and romance in general as being fluff till I try to write something similar. And I'm like, yeah. it was just bloody <laughs> awful. And they, do. they make it look so easy. So it really is tough. And kudos to every writer writing in every genre who makes it look so damn easy. My question, I have two follow-up questions to what you said. The first is, I wanted to see if you landed your agent with that first query or if it was only with the second book. And the other question is, once you had that aha moment at what, the 12,000 words or whatever you said, did you scrap everything or did you take pieces and adapt it? Because something that our listeners often ask is, what does a rewrite mean? Does it mean you scrap everything and you start again on the blank page? Or does it mean you jigsaw puzzle things? And I know this is different for every author, but I love hearing how each author does it. So first about the agent and then second about that rewrite. So I did not land an agent with that first book. I wound up shelving that novel and went back to some of the agents who had given me positive feedback on that first book with The Minuscule Mansion once it was finished and got some full requests right away. But I actually wound up getting my agent through a connection in a roundabout way. I had several queries out. A friend of mine who was mentoring me through the Women Fiction Writers Association had been working with a, a private editor who had been an editor but had then become an agent and had just recently started out and wanted to build her list with some magical realism. So she suggested that I query her and she was wonderful. And I had a, the best conversation with her when we had that initial call, but then I had to do the, the nudging process, right? Because I had several queries out and several fulls out at that point. And one of the agents who got back to me was one who had not yet had a chance to look at my query, asked for the full and wound up reading it in less than 24 hours and wanting to set up a call. And that turned out to be my agent, Maria Whalen at Inkwell, who's been phenomenal. And it was a hard choice. It was, it was a situation where I connected really well with that first agent and she had been so generous with her time and that first phone call. But I also felt a real connection with Maria and felt like she had a really clear vision for how to position this book. I've had several friends who have gotten their agents through this kind of, it really shows to me that, you know, there's no such thing as a, as an unimportant relationship when you're friends with other writers. You just don't know who's going to know somebody else, who might have a suggestion, who might have read something in an acknowledgement section somewhere that turns out to be the lead that you were looking for. And it also really showed me that, again, there's there's just so many different ways. I have friends who have gotten, who have been pulled right out of the slush on a cold query or who have 
gotten in through some other connection or that kind of thing. And I had several different types of writing connections through my humor community, through my novel writing community, that sort of thing. And I, I tapped all of those for suggestions and ideas. And that really turned out to be a helpful thing to have. And it's also helpful to have because it's really, especially if it's other querying writers, the process grinds you down so much. And you get to that point where you're like, do I just need to scrap this whole thing and rewrite and take it down to the studs? And and so it helps to have other people who can talk you off that ledge when when you're only eight queries in and you're wondering if you ought to strip it down to the studs and somebody tells you, no, you know, that's not, that's not really what you need to do yet. So it really helps to have that. And as to revision, so I was only, like I said, I was, I was actually very new into the book, only a, a little over a thousand words when I had that, that instance happen in the plot that kind of surprised me. And I think it's not just a matter of revision and the revision process varying from writer to writer. For me, it varies from book to book. Minuscule Mansion, when I started writing it, I probably pounded out the first, I don't know, maybe 15,000 words without stopping it. I knew exactly what I needed to get out to put all the all the chess pieces in place. And then I started, I, I knew I had some things I needed to do. And I have this, when I'm drafting, I'll often, I use brackets a lot so I can go back and do a search and find later. And sometimes it's, you know, it's really just like a bracket, insert something brilliant here. <laughs> this plot point makes no sense. Make it make sense at some point. But I'll do that so I don't lose my momentum and I'll go forward to whatever scene I had in my head that I know I need to get out. And so there was a lot of that. I'd say probably the first half of writing that book knew exactly where I was going. The second half, I knew what I needed to accomplish, but I was a little, the actual flow of how I was going to do that was a little more unclear. And so I was finessing that as I went and making sure that I later after I had everything on the page that I went back and tried to make that consistent across the whole book so that I wasn't getting because of, I think like a lot of people if I revise as I go I'm never going to finish so I have to get everything out as close to a complete puddle of vomit on the page so that I can kind of start cleaning it up from there on when I got my agent she had some suggestions for how to incorporate some additional thoughts that she had and then when we went out on submission and I started ultimately working with my editor. She also had, my first conversation with my editor was one where Cindy just kind of started going through the the plot with me. And, and it was one of those things where as soon as we started talking, she knew exactly what to do. I, I just, it was one of those give and take conversations where she would say something about, I really think there needs to be more blogs. And have you thought about opening it with a blog? And I went, oh God, I know exactly how I do that. I'd tie it back over, you know. So that was a much more give and take process. I think by the time I finished the edits suggested by my agent and my editor, there were probably an additional maybe 15 to 18,000 words in the book. And they weren't, the, the core of the story was exactly the same. It was just some expansion on some points and some relationships and some explanations that they thought would make the book flow a little bit better. Yeah, that's always lovely when that happens. For me, the hardest part is when an editor says, you need to cut a shitload of things. And cutting a shitload of things is so much harder. And I remember with my debut novel as well, my wonderful editor at Putnam, Kerry Colan, said to me, 
I want you to make South Africa come alive. It's alive to you, but you need it to be alive for a North American audience. And I got to add like 20,000 words just on setting, which is amazing. But it's so important for the book to be tight when it goes out to an editor. Rather have it tight than have it be flabby in terms of too many words. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it was it was a pretty spare. I, I, I want to say when we went out, it was I think it was probably 75, maybe 75,000 words. And it wound up at 84. The interesting thing to me with this book also was that both with my agent and with my editor, the conversations weren't, you know, I I never got an edit letter, for example. I thought that that was something that was standard and I didn't. It was a more freewheeling conversation. And Cindy Wong at Berkeley basically just said, these are the points that I think would make it stronger, but I'm not wedded to any of this. I want you to take some time and play with this and see if it speaks to you in terms of your vision for this story. If it comes up organically in a way that makes sense to you, that's going to make it a stronger book. And that really, on the one hand, it, it really helped to have that freedom to kind of get back in that sandbox. On the other hand, it was utterly terrifying. <laughs> Because this is my first book. And I, you know, you kind of want that, you know, okay, I can do that. But tell me what to do. Like, tell me, (laughs) I don't know, I'm clearly not qualified to make any of these decisions. Tell me what to do. (laughs) And to know that, that actually, that's not always the case. And you you are more qualified than you think you are. It is, in fact, your book uh, was really, really helpful and empowering. And I think helped the next time I was going back to the, the drawing board for the next book. Yeah, I actually love that because sometimes editorial letters can feel a bit intimidating, especially when they're 10 pages long and you, you take it as like huge criticism. And sometimes they can be prescriptive. So I, I like the way this editor works. One question I want to ask you, Audrey, because I know my listeners, I'm they're going, Bianca, ask her about the mentor, ask her about the mentor. So how did you go about getting that mentor? What is that application process like? Because I think so many emerging writers are desperate to work with a mentor. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So the mentor that I was working with was through a formal mentorship program through the Women's Fiction Writers Association, WFWA, which I cannot say enough nice things about. It's women's fiction, not women authors. So there are both, you know, men and women in the group. And it is, if I had to pick the organization that has been most helpful to me in my writing career, it would be WFWA, both in terms of camaraderie, but also in terms of programming that has kind of helped build my voice and my strength as an author. So I originally joined WFWA because I had written that first book and they had a, a a contest they have it every year called the Rising Star Contest, where you submit basically a query package, and they go through with you. You get a read from three other authors, and the prize, if you if you wind up getting through it, is to get your book in front of a, a slate of agents. And so that was one of those things that I thought was really worthwhile because you didn't have to lock yourself into any kind of contract. It was the the worst that could happen was you were going to get actionable feedback from other writers, which was great. And so that was the first program that I did, but they also have two different programs, uh, uh, they have many programs, but the the two that I wound up using for ultimately for this book, although it had started on the earlier one, there's a polish your pages, polish your query, you know, it's a, kind of an elevator pitch program where you're working with other writers to kind of refine your your pitch for your book. 
And there's also a formal mentorship program where they assign you depending on the type of relationship you're looking for. So I think there's three different levels. There's, you know, I'm working on this specific book or there's, I'm looking for a writing buddy, that sort of thing, something for accountability and something in between. And so with that first book, I had applied to be part of the program to be mentored on that book. And the mentor who was assigned to me was a wonderful writer named Rebecca Hodge, who is just great. And she writes suspense and her books are just fantastic, which was great because plotting was something that I really wanted some insight in that first book, which, like I said, was a lot darker. So it fit hers a lot better. And when I was working with her on that first book, that's when I had the idea for that because I'd been in the trenches for a while with that first book. And that was when I started to think maybe I needed to draft something else. And and because the mansion idea came to me so quickly, it was one of those that I just kind of had to strap myself in and start writing. And I sent her when I was about probably about 10,000 words in an email saying, I know you're assigned to work with me as a mentor on this first book, but I had this crazy idea and it's not like anything I've ever written before. And I don't know if it's something or if it's nothing. And is there any way that you would be willing to look at a few pages and see what you think? And she said, send me the whole thing. So I did. And she contacted me. I think she called me the next day and said, I I read this all night. I couldn't put it down. This is the book. She said, I, I like the first book. We can talk about the first book, but this is the book. And that permission that to kind of, you know, that kind of uh, confirmation that this was a worthwhile project. I don't think I would have pursued it if I hadn't had that. I think the fact that I was already in that program and already was working with an author who I knew to be experienced and whose voice I really trusted made all the difference in the world with kind of giving me the confidence I needed to to keep following this path that just yawned open before me. And that really helped a lot. So I I know there are other programs. I mean, I, I also did Pitch Wars and met a writing group through that that has been invaluable. I've got a group of satire writing friends that I got through some of the outlets that I publish with there. And they they all are valuable for different kinds of insights. But the kind of all-encompassing program of a, of a formal mentorship relationship where someone has actually signed up to do that, it just makes all the difference in the world because they know where you're coming from. They know what your goals are. They know the stags that they've hit and they know when you're spinning your wheels. All of that is just hugely helpful. So yeah, big plug for WFWA. I think the membership is like $25 a year and they have a huge writer's toolkit that's free and everything online. They have conferences and retreats. I have a writing group who's based in Raleigh, who has proved to be one of my greatest groups of friends. And so I, whatever you can do to get yourself other people who are doing this and who have done it just makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. On the podcast, we're always saying how incredibly important community is. And that's, that's really, really true. Audrey, we are now at the end of our time together. I'm not sure how that happened. For our listeners, we are going to link to the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone on our bookshop.org affiliate page. It is really just a delightful book. And there are these lovely moments of quiet humor and levity, but it's just such a beautifully written book. The turns of phrase, this mansion really, really comes alive. So Audrey did a phenomenal job there. And also it's a multi-POV in the third person. So for those of you who are writing that kind of novel and who are struggling with that, this is a wonderful example as well of how to do that perfectly. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time and for your kind words. 
And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.